Well, hey everybody, so great to see you. Whether you're here in the room or joining us online, thrilled to have you along for the ride. And a special shout out to the friend who emailed me this week. Her family attends Keystone and she listens every week from Las Vegas, Nevada. Dude, we are on the strip. We are streaming. Yes, Sin City, I'm coming for you. Anyway. Um, by the way, very special welcome if today is your first day joining us in person or online. Uh, you didn't know it when you walked in or tuned in. This is another one of those best weeks to visit Keystone because today we get to launch a brand new series called The New You that's going to take us right up to our launch weekend on September 11. Um, and just a plea, I know Caitlin just mentioned this, but we do need a small army of volunteers to help make our children's ministry happen. And it's actually, not only is it fun to work with the kids, but it's really fun to meet some other people at Keystone and serve along with them. So I'd encourage you uh, to just get some more information. If you, if you sign up for more information, they're not going to like haunt you and hunt you and all that. But uh, it's a great way to, to plug in and make a real difference here at your church. So please consider that. Um, okay, so now for our conversation today, to get us going, I want to note something that we all know to be true. We're going to start with some common ground. Here is the observation. And you probably noticed this. It's impossible to solve a problem when you don't know what's wrong. Have you ever noticed this? Yeah? Uh, here's an example to kind of show you what that means in my life. Uh, my first car was pretty sweet. It was a turbocharged 1983 Volvo station wagon that my family named Valerie. Just take it in a second. This is not the actual car, although it looks very similar. Um, I, mine had a large CB whip antenna on the top. I know, right? An amazing vehicle really captured the attention of the ladies, as you can imagine. Had to keep them away with a stick. Um, but anyway, Valerie's engine had a nasty habit of developing strange new noises and then activating the check engine light, uh, especially after my younger brother, JP, took her off-roading behind the Art Van Furniture Store with his friends. Uh, and he would sort of come back and he wouldn't look so good and he'd call me out into the garage and he's like, it happened again, it's making a noise again, the light's on again. And whenever that would happen, we would do what many young men do in situations like this. We would pop the hood open and sort of put our hands on the edges and stare blankly into the engine compartment. <laughs> Dude, we were checking the engine, okay? But, but here's the thing. Neither one of us had any idea how cars worked. Like, we may as well have been looking in the glove box. There, there was no way that we were going to fix whatever was wrong with the car because we had absolutely no idea what was going on. And, and I wanted to start there today, partly just because, I mean, just look at it. You got to start there, right? But um, I suspect that if we're honest, many of us have been trying to sort of fix ourselves for a long time. Uh, like something's wrong and we want to get better and it hasn't been working. And maybe we've spent money to try to fix ourselves. Uh, maybe we've read books that uh, try to fix ourselves. We've attended seminars or maybe like we even reached out to one of those hypnotists. Thought maybe they could fix me, right? Uh, it's, it's almost like we all have this sense that somewhere out there, there's a better version of ourselves, but we just can't seem to get from here to there, like no matter how hard we try. And some of us would even say, man, I've been going after fixing me for decades. And so you're leaning in. You're like, I can't wait to hear what we're going to talk about. 
because it really is a big deal, this inability to sort of fix ourselves, because not being able to fix ourselves, well, it, it costs. It, it has cost some of us jobs, some of us marriages, some of us reputations. Some of, some of us would say, you know, this inability to fix myself has, has cost me a healthy relationship with my kids or, or my parents. But, but here's the thing, and this is really hopeful news. I actually think that the reason that many of us can't seem to fix ourselves is that we don't really understand what's wrong with ourselves, like at the, at the very deepest level. So, so for the next three weeks, I'm going to fix you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this, you're like, oh, no. Um, for the next three weeks, what I want to do is present an ancient explanation for what's wrong with us. Uh, it's going to be a great time, I promise. Um, and it's found in a letter written by a pastor named Paul to early Christians living in the city of Rome, which at that time was the capital of the world. It's around 2,000 years ago. And, and just fair warning, you may not like Paul's diagnosis of what's wrong with us, at least at first. And that's okay. I, I mean, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here because someone promised to buy you lunch afterwards and, and we're so thrilled you're among us, that's one of the reasons that we exist. But if that's you, you may find yourself thinking something like, well, that's exactly what I'd expect a pastor guy to say. But, but I'm telling you, you don't have to agree with Paul's assessment to consider it. Because again, you've probably had the experience that many of us have had trying to fix what's wrong, wrong with us and, and failing. And we've all had those moments from time to time when we can't seem to make progress in certain areas of our lives. So honestly, it makes sense for us to at least listen to what Paul has to say to hear him out. And that's what I want to do kind of with our time today. And then for the next two weeks, so next Sunday and the following, I want to explore Paul's solution. And that, of course, means that you need to make sure that you either come back in the room or tune in online. Otherwise, this is going to be a, such a downer as a series, right? Like, like, here's what's wrong with you. Have a nice day. Go in peace. <laughs> right. So in, I was laying out this talk and I was like, this is, this is bad if you just come to the first one, but it gets better. So um, in this letter, Paul describes for us his life before... He understood God's solution to fixing what was wrong with him. And his description is absolutely awesome. See if you can resonate with what Paul writes here. Here's what he says. <clears throat> I do not understand what I do. And you're already like, yep, I'm in, right? <laughs> For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And you're all like, mm, yes, preach, brother. Yeah. For, he says, I have the desire to do what's good. Yeah, me too. But I cannot carry it out. Yeah, me too. For, I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And, and what you love these verses, do you not? Right? I mean, think about it. You don't even have to believe in God or Jesus to relate to these verses. This is like a sociological all-skate. Right? <laughs> Let that one sink in. That's kind of a slow burn. I was excited about that joke. Okay. So, it, you know, if you're not a person of faith, you can actually call your friends after church and go, dude, I was in church and I actually heard some verses that make sense. You, you may even have just found your life verse. If you, and if you're new to faith, like life verse is like the verse that you most, you know, reflect on and point to. And people will get like tattoos with their life verse. So you can be like Romans 7, 15, boom, you know, and people would look you up your verse and be like, wow. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Paul's confession once again raises a really great question. Like, why don't we just do what we know we're supposed to do? What is wrong with us? And just imagine how great church services would be if we all just did what we need to do, right? You could come to church 
and or tune in online, see some friends, have some popcorn, sing a few songs, and I can get up and just look at you and say, stop it. See you next week, right? And you note takers, it would be awesome. You'd only need like one single three by five card because I would just repeat four words over and over again like this. You could tell you, you got to start, you got to stop, don't, and always, right? Put it on your card, carry it with you, and there you go, right? But most of us really don't need somebody to tell us what we ought to do, do we? And we really don't need more self-help books. And, and we don't really need someone to tell us not to look at things on the internet that like pollute our minds and mess with our relationships. In other words, our problem isn't that we don't know what to do. Our problem is that in spite of all that information, we can't seem to figure out how to do it. And so the good news is that in this ancient letter, Paul not only describes our problem, but he also in the verses we're going to explore today, starts to point us to the solution. And he begins by explaining it this way. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And every one of us in 21st century, ferociously independent America looks at this and we go, yeah, I don't like that at all. You're telling me I'm powerless and ungodly. And Paul would go, yep, right? He's saying prior to placing faith in Jesus, we were, his readers, he said, you were powerless to fix yourselves. And by nature of that fact, you were ungodly. And just in case, you know, you're slightly offended by the idea that you're ungodly, let me explain what I think Paul means here. He isn't trying to argue that you're like the worst person in the world. He's saying that because you're not perfect, like God is perfect, then you're not like God, so you're ungodly. Godly, that's all he's after, and that makes sense. So then Paul continues. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. In other words, it would be really unusual for someone to give up their life to sacrifice themselves for a really good person. But, but, but if you think about it, like it totally could happen. But, he writes, God, like the creator, your heavenly father, demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, Paul says that Jesus was crucified for sinful people, not for good people, and not for righteous people. And if you were to ask him to clarify, Paul would say, well, honestly, from the perspective of heaven, apart from the intervention of God in someone's life, there are no righteous people. That's what Paul's trying to say when, when he writes that while we were ungodly sinners, Jesus died for us. So ungodly sinners while we were still sinners, which raises a really great question. Um, and theologians have you know, wrestled with this for years. Like when exactly did we all become ungodly sinners who needed Jesus to rescue us, to die for us? Because that's a really big deal. Like, is it something that we did? And fortunately for us, as he continues, Paul actually answers that question. And fair warning, he takes us into some pretty deep waters. And so I'm going to go slow and, and maybe spin around a little bit more than normal. I want you to see what he's saying because it's brilliant. Here's what he says. He says, sin entered the world through one man. And in this way, death through sin. And this is so important for us to understand. Paul essentially tells his readers that they need to think of sin as a noun and not just a verb. Sin is a noun and not just a verb. In other words, uh, sin is a thing and not just a set of actions. He says, long ago, 
He says, this thing called sin entered the world through one man's decision. And the man Paul is talking about here is, of course, the first man, Adam, as in the Adam and Eve story, Garden of Eden. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you've heard that story. But Paul writes that when Adam sinned by making a decision not to trust God's boundaries on his behavior, so that would be like the sin as a verb, when Adam sinned as a verb, sin as a noun was unleashed on the world like a disease that affected and infected everything and everyone. And I'm telling you, for the next few weeks, as we talk about moving from where we are to where we want to be, this is going to be a critical distinction for us to remember. That according to Paul, sin isn't just a verb, it's a noun that results in verbs. And again, if you're thinking, you're like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. And so Paul is going to argue one of the reasons we haven't been able to fix ourselves is that we've only ever addressed sin as a verb. Like we've gone after the things that we know we need to fix and not sin, the noun that gives rise to those things that we need to fix. And also notice that in this verse, Paul writes that sin followed death into the world. If you go back to one slide, we can check that verse out again, but that sin followed death, death through sin. And and so Paul writes that death followed sin into the world, and that actually makes sense if you think about it too. We've all experienced that connection between sin and death, even though most of us have never thought about it in those terms. Like we've all seen how sin can kill a relationship, or sin can kill finances, or sin can kill a career, or sin can damage and even destroy a reputation. It's almost like Paul says to us, wherever sin goes, death eventually follows. Okay, so now let's check out what Paul writes next. Here's what he says as he continues to make his argument. He said, sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men, and the men here is gender inclusive, so all humanity, because all sinned. And this isn't how we typically think about sin, is it? Because we tend to think, um, okay, so death came to me because I eventually sinned. But that's not what Paul says in this verse. What he's saying is once upon a time, a long time ago, there was only one man, Adam. And if you think about it, if there was only one man and that one man was like the common ancestor for all people, uh, because he was our common ancestor, there was a sense that we were all in him. And so you might even say, and Paul does, that in a sense, what Adam did, we all did. And consequently, and this is not your fault and it's not my fault, but you and everyone else who's been born on earth since Adam were born in Sin. Uplifting thought, right? So were my kids. And I was a witness to it, I'm telling you. True, right? Even amazing people like Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and my wife, threw her in the list there, right? We're we're born in sin. And I am definitely going to hear about that after church. But Paul writes that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And as sin infected Adam, it also infected the entire human race, which brings me to Paul's diagnosis of what's wrong with us. And it goes like this. Our problem isn't that we sin. It's that we were born sinners. And you may be thinking to yourself, because I thought this the first time I experienced this thought, like, that's not fair, (laughs) right? 
Like, how, how can that be fair? And, and that's true. It, it doesn't seem fair because it's not fair. Unfortunately, fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. I mean, I mean, think about it. Have you ever met a baby that had a disease that they sort of had unexpectedly received from their mom and dad? It, it's tragic and it's not fair, but it's true. And so in a similar way, Paul writes that you and I were born in Adam. In other words, we were born sinners. And by the way, that's why, and if you have kids, you know this to be true. Have you ever noticed no one has to teach you to sin, right? Like you came by it naturally. It just sort of flowed out of you in your younger years. And not so much anymore, right? No, yeah, right yeah. So sin entered the world through one man's choice and changed everything for everyone. And so now as Paul continues, thankfully, he draws a hopeful contrast. So here's what he says next. He says, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? In other words, Paul says to his readers, listen, God has given those who embrace the sacrifice of Jesus individually the gift of grace. And it's that grace that gives us the gift of right standing with God. Grace is the thing that allows God to look at us and see people whose sins are forgiven. It's amazing, this thing called grace. In fact, someone should write a song about that, right? Yeah. Anyway, to summarize then, Paul says, okay, the trespass was the one act of Adam that condemned all people into sin and the one gift that has the potential to rescue all people is the grace demonstrated by God when Jesus died on the cross. And so Paul essentially tells his readers, just like you were born in Adam, at the moment you placed your faith in Jesus, you were taken out of Adam. And that's a really big deal for all of us who are trying to figure out why we can't seem to do what we know that we should do. Those of us who can't seem to identify that something that at times seems to override our will and compel us to do things that we later regret. So then after drawing this distinction, Paul goes on. He says, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. He says, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed, that's grace, followed many trespasses and brought justification. And that is a beautiful, beautiful word. It's like Paul says, we were all born in Adam and therefore we were all born condemned. But when we're taken out of Adam and placed in Christ, we're justified. Our sins are forgiven, like all of them. And to which, if you grew up in church, you'd probably say, yes, and that's why we get to go to heaven when we die. And if Paul heard you say that, I think he'd respond, well, that is true, but that's not what I'm talking about here. I, Paul would say, I'm after something way more practical than that that actually has a potential to activate hope right here and right now in this life. It's like, it's like, you need to understand this reality because it changes everything in the here and now. It, it, it's a new way to experience life, a way that doesn't involve you just simply trying harder to do better and failing, 
but a way that involves embracing something that becomes true of you the moment that you place your faith in Jesus. And Paul continues. He says, For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul notes that whether we recognize it or not, once we say yes to the invitation of Jesus, and this is like the big idea for the whole series, we are given a new identity as a child of God. It's like from God's perspective, we're no longer who we were. We've been made new. We've been justified. In other words, even if you don't feel like it, from heaven's perspective, there's a new you. And because of that reality, Paul writes that you can actually reign over all the power that seems to overpower you. And that, obviously, is really good news. In fact, if you read the letters of Paul to these early Christians, this is something he brings up over and over and over again because I would argue he's trying to say, what is the key to reigning over sin in this life? It's this very understanding. And that's why when you read those letters carefully, and you totally should, you start to see it over and over again. He repeatedly leverages words like these, in Christ and through Christ. He's like, before Christ, none of this was possible, but now in Christ and through Christ, there's all sorts of new and wonderful potential that you can activate in your life. Paul writes things like this, and I'm just going to show you one. I use great restraint. I had to pick, but check this one out. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Not all things because I'm so awesome, or I'm so great, or I'm so disciplined, or I've read so much, or I've heard so much, or I was hypnotized that one time and it fixed everything, right? No. He says, I can do all things through Christ. His power in my life has the power to change my life. And so Paul would say to his readers, listen, once you're in Christ, you have a new potential to live a better life in this life. Like we all know what life looks like in Adam, where we're overpowered by sin. But he says, listen, that's who you were. He's writing to Christians. Now that you've said yes, to Jesus, you're in Christ, and whether you recognize it or not, sin doesn't have the same power over you because Jesus has provided a way to live a new kind of life now, a life where sin is stripped of its power. And Paul goes on. He says, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, again, that's Adam, when he choos- chose not to honor God's boundaries on his behaviors, he says, the many were made sinners, he goes on, so also through the obedience of the one man, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And, and here's why I think, that, here's what I think Paul is really trying to get after in this passage. It's something like this. If your whole approach to the Christian life, and he's writing to Christians, if your whole approach to the Christian life is to repeatedly thank God for forgiving your sins and then trying your best to do what Jesus wants you to do, Paul would say to us, then you're right where I was when I wrote that I can't seem to do what I want to do. It's like you're committed to doing the right things, but you just can't seem to pull it off. He says, but I have some great news for you because there are massive universe-shaping implications to what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross. And once you place your faith in 
Jesus, you're taken out of Adam and placed in him. And he says, and if you are in Christ, then you are no longer who you were. There's been a core at the, a change at the core of who you are. Again, there is a new you. And in the chapters and verses that follow this passage, Paul would say, I'm going to teach you how to live out of that new identity, like practical steps. Okay, Paul, there's the theological construction. How do we live into that? And he would say, stay tuned. But I'm telling you, this isn't primarily about heaven, even though that's a real part of it. This is about your life here and now and how you can begin the process of becoming, and this is awesome, who you already are because of Jesus. I love that thought. And I cannot wait to share with you what comes next. But for that, we will have to wait until next week. Cliffhanger, sermon ending. There you go, right? Yeah. And now, um, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll close our time in prayer. And once again this week, if you joined us and and you would say, honestly, I came and that was interesting, um, but I need to talk to somebody or pray with somebody, I invite you to, under the screen right here, after the service, we have some volunteers who would love to, to meet with you to hear a little bit of your story. And just to pray with you. And so, uh, but for the rest of us, uh, why don't you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, these are deep waters and yet so, so critical uh, for us to understand. And so this morning, um, we thank you for rescuing us from a situation that we could never rescue ourselves from. Thank you for seeing potential in us to be like Jesus. Thank you for grace when we fail. Thank you for second chances and third chances and 99th chances and 175th chances. Thank you for loving us even when we're unlovable. And thank you for calling us to be better people in this world, people who better reflect what you had in mind when you created us. I pray over the next couple weeks that we would catch a fresh vision for the work that you want to do in our lives and through our lives because after Jesus, we are no longer in Adam we are in your son and in him we have justification and in him we have hope Uh, but for today we thank you thank you for this place thank you for this community thank you for the freedom to gather thank you for preserving paul's words for us and thank you for the way that as we read them they sort of read us and point us to hope and point us to truth and so we bless you and we thank you and we celebrate you and we love you In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part two.